Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, May 17th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I pray that this um, this live recording goes off fine. I mean, the last two weeks I did live programs and Melissa and I were actually on the road. So it was easy to do live programs. I had a wonderful phone signal. Um, I, I try to prevent myself from letting people know ahead of time any longer when I'm going on the road because my address has been spread around the Internet by certain friends, if I could use the term very loosely. So I don't want to let people know when we're away from home for an extended period of time for that reason. We don't plan any more road trips for the next two or three months, most likely, and we're probably better off staying home during the summer. This evening, and and one more thing I wanted to say is that my, my <laughs> these last three weeks, I have started a second podcast each week, and we've been posting a lot of interviews with various people and the new Bible Basic series. And and it seems that people that listen to our programs, kind of um, looking at the download numbers, sort of forgot about the Arab question parts five and six and, and this series on the Gospel of John. I'm sorry for such a long lapse. I don't want anyone to forget about it. And I do pray that our listeners catch up to the last few presentations. This evening will be on the Gospel of John part 20 which is subtitled, For Fear of the Jews. And it was quite timely that as I wrote this presentation, just yesterday, I believe, I learned that Christagenia was mentioned in an ADL report on hate, which is their favorite word. The Jew bastards are indeed the personification of hate. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, hates them, and they will have their day soon enough. In part 19 of this commentary on the Gospel of John, which we had subtitled, No Friend of the Devil, we made a lengthy presentation from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, hoping to explain where Paul had described not only the true essence of Christian communion, but also the danger of accepting those who are not worthy of communion into Christian fellowships. The ministry of Yahshua Christ is an example for us of that very danger. Although, within the providence of God, it worked to his advantage. Yahshua had given his bread of life discourse in an assembly hall in Capernaum, and even his students had a hard time understanding its meaning. So he responded and said, The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But some from among you are they who do not believe. John then inserted a parenthetical remark into his account, where he wrote, For Yahshua knew from the beginning who they who do not believe are, and who it is who shall betray him. Next, he recorded the conclusion given by Christ himself, where he said, For this reason I said to you, 
that no one is able to come to me unless it should be given to him from the Father. As we had also discussed in John chapter 2, Yahshua Christ, being God incarnate, knew the inherent nature of men when or even before he encountered them. So the apostle wrote at the conclusion of an encounter between Christ and the officials at the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Christ would not subject himself to the authorities in the temple because he knew that they were inherently evil. Now here, at the end of John's description of the events which followed the Bread of Life discourse, we see that many of the people who had followed Christ had at this point departed, ostensibly because they could not understand or believe him, while Peter explained why he and others would not depart. By saying, they who do not believe, John was also referring to people who did not possess an inherent capacity for belief, as we shall see Christ himself describe in John chapter 10. So Christ had asked his disciples, Have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a false accuser or a devil? There John informed us, that he was speaking in reference to Judas Iscariot. And it is evident that the devil remained for other and nefarious reasons, but not because he believed. Commenting on this passage, we offered a lengthy explanation describing why it was that Judas Iscariot was a devil. This we shall discuss once again in John chapter 8 where we hope to further expound upon the fact that while the word for devil, as it appears in the King James Version, only actually describes a false accuser, the Greek word, there are certain presumed people here on this earth whose inherent nature is to act in that manner. I should have said the Greek word at, for devil as it is translated in the King James Version, so there would be no confusion over what I meant. Later in John chapter 8, Christ had accused his adversaries for behaving in that same manner, for reason that they were children of the original accuser of our brethren, as the devil and his angels are described in the Revelation. Judas was a devil because he was, evidently, an Edomite or Edomian, and the Edomites were in part descended from those Canaanites who were themselves mingled with the Kenites, Rephaim, and other races in early times. When, in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul of Tarsus described why Esau was rejected, he wrote that he was a fornicator and a profane person. Ostensibly, the only reason for which Esau could be called a fornicator was the fact that he had taken wives of the Canaanites. In that same chapter of Hebrews, 
Paul had contrasted bastards and sons. And it certainly seems to be inherent in the nature of a bastard to contend against the word of God. Yahshua Christ being that word made flesh. At least many of the people of Judea had contended against him. So in our commentary on those final verses of John chapter 6, we discussed some of the historical background of Judea in the centuries leading up to the incarnation of the Christ, which we hope to further elaborate upon once again when we present John chapter 8. At his appearance, Judea was a multi-ethnic province of the Roman Empire, as Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous Greek geographer, had said that the Edomians were mixed up with the Judeans, and that they joined the Judeans and shared in the same customs with them, in book 16 of his geography. When we discuss John chapters 8 and 10, it will hopefully become evident that this circumstance has serious implications which explain all of the divisions over Christianity in the first century, the subsequent persecutions of Christians, and also accounts for the nature of the Jews and Jewry to this very day. Now with this background, we may begin to see the reasons behind what was described which follows as we commence with chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. And after these things, Yahshua walked about in Galilee, for he did not desire to walk in Judea because the Judeans sought to kill him. Christ had driven the money changers from the temple, as it was described in John chapter 2. Then the Pharisees had heard of the success that he had in accumulating followers from among the people as his disciples were baptizing, as it is recorded in John chapter 4. Then they began to persecute him, as it is recorded in John chapter 5, after he had healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In the dialogue which resulted, he had told them in several ways that he was indeed the expected Messiah and that the works which he did were sufficient proof of his assertion. But here in John chapter 7, we have the first occasion where we are informed by the apostle that the Judeans actually sought to kill him. Where the Judeans wanted to kill Christ, Christ himself would not have been surprised. This is evident where, describing events from the last year of his ministry, we read in Matthew chapter 17, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. At that point, Matthew describes the group as coming to Capernaum in Galilee, and not long before the final journey to Judea. Yet, in Matthew chapter 21, after Christ spoke in a parable of the stone which the builders rejected, we read from verse 45, 
And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Later in John's Gospel, in chapters 8 and 10, we shall learn that these people who wanted to kill him were not his people in the first place, although they claimed to be Judeans. Furthermore, if Christ were to be the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist had declared him to be, then he was to be crucified on a Passover. And if his ministry was to last for three and a half years, it would have to occur on a particular Passover. So at times, the officials of the temple wanted to seize him, and there were reasons why they could not, because the circumstances prevented them. But at other times, Christ had purposely avoided them so as not to provoke them to take action in an untimely manner. While it was not yet time, the time certainly was approaching. As John says, now it was near the tabernacles feast of the Judeans. And that word for tabernacles here is skenopegia, which is literally the setting up of tents. And it is frequently used in this same context in the Septuagint. Here the concise nature of John's gospel is also fully evident, as we have at the beginning of chapter 6 the statement that now it was near the Passover, the Feast of the Judeans. Yet the only events which John had recorded since that statement in chapter 6 are the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness and the bread of life discourse in Capernaum both of which actually transpired over only a few days. So, accepting those few days from the Passover to the Feast of Tabernacles, there is a period of six months from which John recorded nothing. Later, in John chapter 10, we shall see a reference to the Feast of Dedication in winter. And then another reference to the final Passover of the ministry of Christ, which is first mentioned in chapter 11, the Passover upon which he is crucified. So we may imagine that the events recorded here and through John chapter 10 took place from roughly October through December of the final year of his ministry. As we have already discussed earlier in this commentary, a three and a half year duration for the ministry of Christ, as it is evident from several scriptures, would necessarily include four Passover feasts. Since he evidently began his ministry in the fall, around the time of his 30th birthday, but only three Passover feasts are explicitly mentioned in the Gospel of John. So, if the Passover mentioned in John chapter 6 is indeed the last one before the Passover upon which he was crucified, three years of his ministry have already transpired, and from this point, only about six months remain. Now Christ is challenged by his own brethren. Therefore, in verse 3 of John chapter 7, 
Therefore, his brother said to him, you must cross over from here and go into Judea in order that your students also shall see your works which you do. For no one does anything in secret, yet seeks it to be before the public. If you do not, I'm sorry, if you do these things, if you do these things, make yourself known to the society. The phrase which we translate as in public is enparesia. The Greek word parasia being, according to Liddell and Scott, outspokenness, frankness, freedom of speech, claimed by the Athenians as their privilege, because that's how the word first became associated with that, where parasia literally means to, to flow freely. It was not necessary, necessarily a privilege in first century Judea, and there are many examples of that in Scripture. Rather than in public, the phrase may have been rendered simply as openly as it is in the King James Version. Interestingly, the Geneva Bible exaggerates the meaning, where it renders this sentence, for there is no man that does anything secretly, and he himself seeks to be famous. Now John inserts another parenthetical remark in verse 5 and says, For not even his brothers believed in him. The Codex Beze, a 5th century codex, adds the words at that time to the end of this verse. That codex actually has very, very many interpolations. But the reasons why it may have added those words may become manifest as we continue to discuss this first. First, there are more important aspects of this significant statement which must be discussed. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, as well as many of the Protestant denominations of today, have traditionally interpreted that word brother to mean, in a Christian context, to mean a fellow believer. But that is not how the term was used in Scripture. Not at all. The churches have traditionally followed the pagan sects of the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics in their corruption of this term and several others. To the writers of the New Testament, a brother was a man of one's own family or one's extended family and nothing else. At the end of John chapter 6, just a few short verses ago, Simon Peter had expressed a full belief in Christ on behalf of himself and at least some of the other disciples. And Yahshua had acknowledged it, albeit indirectly. By taking credit for having chosen them, Christ revealed an expectation that they would indeed believe him. So in that manner, he acknowledged Peter's profession of belief. When Christ asked his disciples whether they would also forsake him, Peter replied. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the living, the son of the living God. <clears throat> but here, John described the disbelief of the brothers of Christ, who must have stood apart from the other apostles. Their disbelief must have stood apart from the belief of John himself, or of Simon Peter, or of other of the disciples. So, Pete, so John and Peter and the other disciples are not the brothers of Christ. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus also distinguished between the brethren of the Lord apart from Peter, whom he calls Cephas in that passage, which is the Hebrew equivalent of Petros or Peter, and also apart from himself and Barnabas and other apostles. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. In Matthew chapter 13, we see four men are named as the, specifically named as the brethren of Christ, who were accompanied by Mary, his mother, where it says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In Mark chapter 15, that same Mary is named as the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and of Salome where James the Less is the younger Apostle James, as opposed to the James who was the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. And we also see that Christ had at least one sister, Salome. Yet Christ, during the time of his ministry, is never called the brother of the other disciples, and the other disciples are never referred to as the brethren of Christ. So the word brother in scripture, when used in an immediate sense, refers to a man's close kin, his brothers by the same mother. And that is the literal meaning of the Greek word Adelphus, which was used to indicate, according to Liddell and Scott, a brother or sister by one or both of the same parents. In the greater, transcendental sense, it is used of the people of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel collectively, since they are all related, being members of the same family. And in that regard, Christ is firstborn among many brethren, according to Paul of Tarsus. Unlike the Synoptic Gospels, John did not provide a list of the twelve apostles. In the Synoptic Gospels, James, James the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, or Jude, the brother of James, are mentioned among the twelve disciples in Luke chapter 6. The same Judas, or Jude, is mentioned again in John chapter 14. But it is certainly evident that here, while they are not specified by name, at least two of the brethren of Christ did not believe him. So while it is possible that either James or Jude were still somewhat skeptical of Christ, 
it is more plausible that Joseph and Simon are being referred to here, as they are also his brothers. James and Jude are mentioned again among the disciples in Acts chapter 1. So they remained with Christ until the end. And they are also the authors of the epistles bearing those names. The Roman Catholic Church denies the fact that Christ had brethren in this manner in order to accommodate two great heresies. The first is that brother can mean something different than the way it, in which it was used by the writers of Scripture. The church insists that a brother is merely a fellow believer, and therefore anyone who claims to be a believer can be a brother, which is a lie and a great deception. The deception is used to admit wolves among the sheep. The second and more significant heresy is the false doctrine that Mary, the mother of Christ, was an eternal virgin. The scriptures plainly indicate that Mary, the Theotokos, the God-birther or God-bearer, as they are accustomed to idolizing her, Mary had at least five additional children later in her life. Those five are the apostles James, the son of Alphaeus, not the son of Joseph of Nazareth, the son of Alphaeus, Jude, his brother, and Joseph, Simon, and Salome. Explaining this to Catholics, or to the followers of Eastern Orthodoxy today, one is very likely to be called a Protestant. And that is actually quite amusing. To identity Christians, it is the Catholics and the Orthodox who are Protestants, since they protest the plain word of Scripture in favor of the traditions of men. Many of the traditions of the so-called churches stand in plain contradiction to Scripture. And then the fools who follow those church traditions claim that men cannot understand Scripture, which is also a lie. Both Yahshua Christ and Paul of Tarsus fully expected men everywhere to be able to read and understand the scripture. Now Christ responds to his brothers. Then Yahshua says to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always at hand. As we have already explained, there was an appointed time at which Christ was to die, and it had to be a Passover. Here was the Feast of Tabernacles, and his brethren were provoking him to push the matter of his presence in Judea, which would indeed provoke the Judeans. In Matthew chapter 26, at the Passover celebration, Six months later, we read where he had commanded his disciples to prepare the Passover meal so that they may celebrate, and describing a certain man at whose house they would hold the celebration, we read, and he said, go into the city to such a man, Christ instructing his disciples, and say unto him, the master saith, 
my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. So where he said, my time is at hand, he indicates to us that he knew all along when it was that he was going to make his great sacrifice. Now, where he continues to speak to his skeptical brothers, he also explains how their time is always at hand. The society is not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify concerning it that its works are evil. The brothers of Christ were evidently engaged with the world, going along with it and getting along in it, rather than withstanding it and opposing its sins. So long as the men, so long as men agree with the world, it is their time because the world will not hate them. Rather, the followers and true believers in Yahweh should also have emulated Abraham who looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, as Paul of Tarsus explained it in Hebrews chapter 11. That is what Christians should also do today. And that city, as it is described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, is the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So once again, we come full circle to the Christian need for brotherly love. Later on, in John chapter 15, Christ told those of his disciples who would follow him that these things I command you, that you love one another, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it <laughs> hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. This is how we know what Christ is saying to his brothers here. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, they were called to awakening out of all of these people in Judea, as we explained, I think it was last week in part 19. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then, in the first epistle of John, in chapter 3, we read, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. So it should be evident from Scripture, as it is also evident in history, that the princes of this world hate us when we love our brethren and love and seek to follow after Christ by keeping his commandments. Only the events of Genesis chapter 3 and the ensuing enmity which was first displayed in the slaying of Abel by Cain in Genesis chapter 4, explain the source and cause of this phenomenon. Now Yahshua 
continues to address his brothers. You go up to the feast. Not yet do I go up to this feast because my time is not yet fulfilled. He didn't want to make a spectacle of himself and provoke the Judeans. Then, having said these things, he himself remained in Galilee. The tradition, which is evident in the gospel from as early as Luke chapter 2, was for families and extended families, entire villages, to travel together to Jerusalem from their countryside, towns, and villages for the appointed feasts, which they were required to attend three times each year in the law, which are the feasts of unleavened bread, which begins with the Passover, and then first fruits, which is called Pentecost, and finally, the Feast of Tabernacles. Some readers see a discrepancy here in verse 8 with what is to follow. However, there is no discrepancy. Unfortunately, however, the Nestle Eland Novum Testamentum Grece, in both the 27th and 28th editions, follows the codices Sinaiticus and Beze, which had the verse to read in part, I do not go up to this feast. They have verse 8 to read in part. I do not go up to this feast, rather than I do not yet go up to this feast. Where our text that says I do not yet go up to this feast, where our text follows the 3rd century papyri, P66 and P75, and the codices, Vaticanus, Borgianus, Washingtonensis, Codex 070, and the majority text. That reading found in the Nestle Aland text clearly conflicts with the subsequent account and forces the proposition that the apostle records Christ as having contradicted himself, or at least having lied to his brethren. The purpose of Christ was only, not yet do I go, and not that he would not go at all. The Greek word, upo, primarily means not yet, although sometimes it was used as an emphatic form of the negative particle for not at all. Here it cannot be interpreted as not at all, thereby, once again, forcing Christ to contradict himself. But some translations do that very thing. It can only be honestly interpreted by its primary meaning, not yet. And Christ certainly did not contradict himself. By the law, Christ was compelled to attend the feast, and he did. But he did not have to suffer the provocation of his brothers and make a spectacle of himself before his time. So we read in verse 10, But as his brothers went up to the feast, then he also went up, not openly, but as if 
in secret. His brothers had demanded that he go up openly, making signs among the Judeans, evidently so that they could witness the subsequent spectacle. Because he professed that it was not yet his time, they must have been disappointed, even if they may only have been mocking him. Evidently, the Judeans themselves were laying in wait for him, hoping for him to come openly, as John attests. Then the Judeans sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring concerning him among the crowds. Some indeed said that he is good. But others said no, rather he would deceive the people. Of course, no one had spoke publicly concerning him. Or, in the fragmented text of Papyri, Papyrus 75, no one had spoken publicly on behalf of him, rather than concerning him. No one had spoken publicly concerning him due to fear of the Judeans, or as the King James Version has it, for fear of the Jews. So the people in general were discouraged from speaking what they believed was true for fear of the Jews. This situation would have stifled the dialogue concerning Christ and would have kept many in Judea blind as to the truth of the matter so that they might investigate that truth for themselves. The Jews used that same tactic to suppress dialogue on many historical, political, and social issues today. Today, Christians are once again found in this same predicament. The scriptures command Christians to separate from sinners, to put away fornicators and idolaters, and not even to greet those who bear those who do not bear the doctrine of the Christ. Yet today, Christians have lost their freedom of association, and they are forced to placate and even to comfort both sodomites and antichrists. Henry Ford, in his book, The International Jew, proved through citations of many court cases and other circumstances from the late 18th and early 19th centuries that the Jew was behind this secularization of society, especially in volume two of that book, in the chapter Jewish Rights Clash with American Rights. I hope to be presenting and commenting on most of that chapter in an upcoming, and it is still upcoming, in an upcoming presentation of the Protocols of Satan. Christians are also forced to tolerate Jews themselves, in spite of the fact that toleration of Jews is something which both the gospel and revelation of Christ, as well as certain of the epistles of the apostles, warn Christians not to do. In the second epistle of John, for example, Christians are warned, that whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and brings not this doctrine, 
receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. To bid Godspeed in archaic English is merely to greet someone. So Christians should not even greet Jews, lest they be held responsible for their evil works. When you allow the devil into your home, you yourself are responsible for the evils that he will commit. And being a devil, he will certainly commit evil. With that alone, it is clear that Christianity is not practiced by the vast majority of people who consider themselves to be Christians. For centuries, Jews have claimed the authority to explain what Christianity is. And the churches have often recognized that claim, if only upon the presumed conversion of the Jew, Jews like Brother Nathaniel, the ugly bastard. Historically, Jews have used that presumption of authority to corrupt and subvert Christian society, in spite of the fact that according to Christ and the apostles, Jews are the last people on earth to have any understanding of anything which is truly Christian. It is laughable and at the same time deplorable that a Jew would be able to say, oh, that is not Christian, without being mocked and scorned. Now, Jews have come to the point where they even demand special rights and privileges that Christians in Christian societies, never even thought to give themselves. Now Christ can be publicly criticized, lied about, and condemned, but Jews are demanding that they themselves are elevated above criticism and condemnation. For example, and I could give a thousand examples, but I will only use one, because it's a recent one. For example, there is currently a bill in the Florida State Legislature, which has just recently passed both houses unanimously, and which is about to become law. The governor has even promised to sign this bill in Palestine. So with that, we may see who is really in control of Florida. Although this bill only affects the operation of the Florida public schools, it is another step in the incremental stranglehold which Jews have sought to impose upon all public discourse. So that everything that is spoken is spoken with fear of the Jews. The bill prohibits things which are not even likely to happen in Florida public schools. However, it is also generally patterned after a model which Jews have sought to use in order to regulate all forms of public life and public discourse in both America and in Europe. So, among its provisions, it does the following. It prohibits calling for, aiding, or justifying violence against Jews. These things are already illegal under general public laws, 
for instance, practically everywhere in America and the West, calls for violence against anyone are labeled as terroristic threats or incitements to riot and are punishable by law. So no particular class or group of people needs special laws to protect them from actions that are already unlawful. But this provision restricts free speech and opinion to the point where Jews become a special and protected class of their own, who are not only free from violence, but free from any other criticism at all. Next, it prohibits alleging myths about a world Jewish conspiracy or that Jews control the media, economy, government, or other institutions. Wow. So the historian who sees a definite and demonstrable pattern in the actions of Jews, for instance, in the verifiable fact that most of the Soviet proletariat happened to be Jewish, or that Jews are indeed greatly overrepresented in positions of control over the media, or even that Jews demanded that Christ be executed by the Romans, is precluded from discussing any such facts. A summary survey of the people who hold positions of authority in the corporate media clearly indicates that Jews have absolute control over 95% of American and European media and publishing. And now it is illegal to note that in Florida schools, which includes the state's largest universities. A summary survey of the membership of the United States Congress, the federal bureaucracies, or the court systems, including the Supreme Court, reveals that Jews are highly overrepresented compared to their general proportion of the overall population. Throughout the West, Jews are without doubt overrepresented in every aspect of political and social life which can influence the direction of nations, the policy of nations. They did not gain this advantage because of any special ability. The rest of the population is not benefited by this advantage, but has only suffered more. Jews only had this advantage because they themselves collude with one another and promote one another purposely so that they can dominate any nation which they infiltrate. And they act that way naturally. At the same time, they chastise and accuse Christians who act in that manner, crying injustice at what they themselves do naturally. Paul of Tarsus warned the Christians at Rome that they should prefer one another. And for fear of the Jews, Christians now fail to prefer their own. Sometime around 125 B.C., John Hyrcanus began circumcising Edomites into Judaism, making them fellow citizens of the Judeans. By 36 B.C., 89 years later, if you can't do the math, 89 short years, 
less time than it's been since the passage of the Federal Reserve Act here in the United States. By 36 BC, Herod had bribed the Romans, became king of Judea, and began appointing his own people into all of the offices of power. Herod the Edomite did that. This was the same process by which Jews subverted America in the early 20th century. Upon the incarnation of Christ, people were afraid to speak the truth for fear of the Jews. And Christians are once again faced with that same circumstance today. This is not a coincidence. So we continue with the Florida law, which also prohibits accusing Jewish people, and this is important, accusing Jewish people of being responsible for real or imaginary wrongdoing by a single Jewish person, group, or the state of Israel, or for acts of non-Jews. Jews always complain about white privilege, while only a very small portion of whites are actually privileged. Yet Jews will harp on and on and on about white privilege, accusing whites universally of white privilege. So they try to outlaw that same mentality when it's applied to Jews. And even outlaw accusing Jewish people of being responsible for real wrongdoing. So events such as the destruction of the USS Liberty at the hands of the Israeli military, something which many survivors of the fated ship have clearly and authoritatively attested, can no longer be discussed because Jews can no longer be criticized by law. Note that this provision makes accusing Jews of real acts illegal. So Jews cannot be criticized or condemned even when they are guilty. Next, the law protects the biggest Jewish lie of recent history as it prohibits accusing Jewish people of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Yet, even by their own admission, Jews have exaggerated the Holocaust. And official numbers have been greatly reduced even in Jewish or other governmental sources. For example, the number of Jews supposedly killed at Auschwitz has been reduced from 4 million to 1.5 million. Many Jews who have claimed to be Holocaust survivors and who have told fantastic tales have been exposed, and many have even admitted that they fabricated their stories. But now, any discussion of that is against the law, at least in the Florida public schools. Many other obvious lies about the so-called Holocaust will also never be brought to light so long as Jews are in power, since Jews continue to profit from them both politically and economically. In Europe, many otherwise harmless individuals are in prison, especially in Germany, for nothing other than questioning the official version of the Holocaust story. Elderly women, such as the author Ursula Haberbeck, have been imprisoned. Lawyers, such as Sylvia Stoltz and Horst Mailer, 
had been imprisoned simply because they attempted to defend their clients against charges of Holocaust denial. So they were charged with Holocaust denial. Others, such as the chemist Germar Rudolph, have lost their academic credentials because they found evidence which refutes the Jewish tales. For Jews, the Holocaust is a God which cannot be denied. Just as Daniel was sent to the ovens because he refused to worship the idols of Babylon, yet there is not one shred of proof that any Jew was ever sent to the ovens of Auschwitz. Next, the Florida law establishes a peculiar, the legality of a peculiar, peculiar Jewish internationalism by prohibiting accusing Jewish citizens of countries other than Israel of being more loyal to Israel than their own nations. Get that, their own nations. Of course, other nations are not supposed to be the Jews' own nations. So perhaps the wording of the provision itself reveals Jewish attitudes towards their hosts. Perception of the truth of Jewish allegiance to a foreign government is now against the law in Florida schools, in spite of the fact that many Jews in America openly bear the mantra of Israel first. They only want to prohibit the goyim from discussing this obvious truth. A popular liberal pro-Jewish publication called the Huffington Post published an article in 2012 which was written by a Jew entitled Why the Term Israel First Matters. But perhaps that will also be proscribed from the Florida public schools. Finally, the law prohibits demonizing, applying a double standard to, or delegitimizing Israel. And here it becomes illegal to criticize a foreign artificial political entity which was created on land that had already been occupied by another people for over 1,500 years. So people who are marginalized in their own nation pushed out of their homes, and even butchered, can no longer be defended in Florida public schools. They can't even be heard in Florida public schools. While we have no personal care for Arabs, the injustice is blatant that this law precludes Israeli policies from even being discussed in an objective manner in an objective manner. I'm sorry. All of this is for fear of the Jews. And if the Jews had their way, similar laws will be imposed on the general public universally throughout the West. Many provisions of this bill have already been made into law in many European nations. And the Jews are constantly pushing the American Congress to do the same here, where they are obstructed only by the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. 
So they're trying to trick people into a new constitutional convention. And all those rights will disappear. Once the Jews are successful at completely eroding the Second Amendment, something which they have already been working on and succeeding at incrementally for many years, then they will work on eliminating the First Amendment. The adage is true, that if you want to know who rules over you, just look at those whom you are not allowed to criticize. Another adage is true, that when purported facts of history need to be upheld by law, then it is certain that the history itself is truly a lie, because truth does not need to be upheld by law, not ever. Jews constantly lie about history in order to gain political advantage, and their lies are indeed systemic among them. For instance, in 1959, a Jew named Alvin Rubinstein wrote an article for the Journal of Social Science entitled, titled Anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, which lamented the supposed plight of Jews under the Soviet system from the days which continued from the days of the Tsar. But Trotsky was a Jew, and Lenin was a Jew, something which was only admitted recently. And was vehemently denied very recently. There was also credible evidence that Stalin was a Jew, and that is still vehemently denied. It can be demonstrated that as much as 80% of the original Soviet government was comprised of Jews. It is also documented that the Jews, under communism, outlawed anti-Semitism, in an article posted at the communist website, Marxists.org, there is a document that can also be easily verified. The veracity of this document can also be easily verified in other sources. The document is a statement on anti-Semitism signed by Stalin, addressed to a Jewish news agency in the United States and published in the Russian newspaper Pravda in 1936. It's a 1931 document. It is titled, Reply to an Inquiry of the Jewish News Agency in the United States. It was also published by the Foreign Languages Publishing House in Moscow in 1954. In answer to your inquiry, national and racial chauvinism is a vestige of the misanthropic customs characteristic of the period of cannibalism. This is Joseph Stalin speaking, right? Anti-Semitism as an extreme form of racial chauvinism is the most dangerous vestige of cannibalism. I guess because the Edomites were eating Israelites, perhaps. Anti-Semitism is of advantage to the exploiters 
as a lightning conductor that defects the blows aimed by the working people at capitalism. Anti-Semitism is dangerous for the working people as being a false path that leads them off the right road and lands them in the jungle. Hence, communists, as consistent internationalists, cannot be but irreconcilable sworn enemies of anti-Semitism. In the USSR, anti-Semitism is punishable with the utmost severity of the law as a phenomenon deeply hostile to the Soviet system. Under USSR law, active anti-Semites are liable to the death penalty. And that's signed by Joseph Stalin, January 12, 1931. There is verifiable photographic and documentary evidence, some of it which is published at the Christogenia Mein Kampf project, that in the Soviet Union, the churches were all closed, while the synagogues remained open and unmolested. One photograph, which we have posted, of a plaque hanging outside the entry of a synagogue in Kiev, attests in both English and Russian that the synagogue Chabad was founded in 1895. Until 1941, the synagogue was used as a house of prayer of the Jewish community. But during the occupation of the city in 1941, that's by the Germans, the building was destroyed. The new synagogue built in its place was reopened in 2010, and the plaque, which we just read, was affixed to the wall. In stark contrast, there is much historical evidence that throughout the same period, the Christian churches were closed without exception, and many of them, which even survived the Bolshevik Revolution, were then used as warehouses or theaters. There is much contemporary and incontrovertible evidence that the Bolsheviks persecuted Christians murdered the priests, raped the nuns, and shuttered the churches, all while leaving Judaism and its rabbis unmolested. It must not be mistaken that communism is Jewish, capitalism is Jewish, and the international corporations which are controlled by a handful of Jewish bankers are bringing the world down the path to global communism sometimes rapidly and sometimes in small and incremental steps. The ultimate goal of Jewish communism is Jewish world supremacy, the aspiration of the Talmud. It is the Jewish-controlled capitalist corporations which actively promote the Marxist agenda in our present time for that very purpose. For that same reason, those same corporations endeavor to completely deconstruct white Christian society. In the first few centuries after Christ, Christianity succeeded in spite of the fear of the Jews. And it is clear in the accounts of the apostles, in their epistles, and in the book of Acts, that Jews were persecuting Christians or inciting the Romans to persecute them across the pagan Roman world. 
the early Christian writer Tertullian in chapter 21 of his Apology explicitly attributed the persecution of Christians under Rome to the Jews. Minucius Felix credited demons with the fabrication of falsehoods about Christians, where he was using the term as an allegory for Jews, falsehoods which led to the persecution of Christians. Both men wrote in the third century, Christians sought only to follow Christ and seek the righteousness of God. But Jews have always inherently persecuted the righteous. Wherever Jews are found, their endeavor has been to recreate the world into the image of Sodom and Gomorrah. For that reason, modern Christians are now being forced by law to accept the persons of sodomites and whores. And if they refuse, they are stripped even of their own private businesses. There are countless examples of the parallels between the time of Christ and the current world circumstances which we may exhibit here. However, our purpose is not to make a full historical exhibition, but only a commentary on the Gospel of John. If the Jews are successful, and once their so-called anti-Semitism laws are finally enacted throughout the United States, once laws such as this one in Florida become universal throughout the West, the United States will indeed become a new Soviet Union. As in many respects, it has already devolved into a communist utopia. In that event, Christians will be openly persecuted once again, and all because they still refuse to speak out for fear of the Jews. But even though Yahshua Christ had come into Jerusalem for this feast discreetly, even though he did not want to make an exhibition upon his entrance into the city, he still could not help but speak the truth. So John continues his account, and it already being in the middle of the feast, that would be about three days into it because it's a week-long feast, or even really an eight-day feast, it's enveloped in two Sabbaths. Being in the middle of the feast, Yahshua went up into the temple and taught. Then the Judeans wondered, saying, How does he know literature, or literally letters, the word also applies to writings and even books, how does he know literature not being instructed? Just like today, most people only believe what they hear through official channels and refuse to believe anything else, regardless of the proofs which may accompany the testimony. Today, generally speaking, if people do not hear something from CNN, Fox News, or any of the other Jewish-controlled media outlets, they will not believe it at all. If someone learns something which they are told is true in a university, regardless of how much contrary evidence he may be shown in documentation, it is almost impossible to convince him otherwise. 
So men today act only upon what they hear from the Jews or from those of whom the Jews approve. And they remain obedient to the Jewish teachings, not daring to stray from what they hear in the media or in schools, in spite of the reality of whatever situation they may face, all for fear of the Jews. Then Yahshua replied to them and said, My teaching is not mine, but of he who sent me. If one wishes to do his will, he shall know concerning the teaching, whether it is from Yahweh or I speak by myself. He speaking by himself seeks his own honor, but he seeking the honor of he who has sent him, meaning God, he is true and there is no injustice in him. It is evident in the subsequent events of the gospel, in the words of Christ where he condemned the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23, and in the epistles of Paul of Tarsus and his struggles with the Judaizers, which are described in the book of Acts, that the authorities in Judea saw the law as a means to rule over and suppress the people while Christians sought to keep the commandments because they love God and sought to please him. From Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. Everything they do is for show, but within they are full of extortion and excess. In other words, they stole the meat and the wine that they fill the cup and the platter with. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter. Put honest food in them, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear, appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The people of Judea kept the law for the sake of appearance, to please men or to be honored by men, while Christians were taught to keep the law out of love for their brethren and hoped only to be accounted worthy of the elect of God. From earlier, in that same chapter of Matthew, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All, therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that you observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on, on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at the feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, 
but be ye not called rabbi. For one is your master, Christ. And all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters. For one is your master, Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Of course, as a digression, Moses' seat, the temple in Jerusalem, no longer exists. So the scribes and Pharisees no longer sit there. Therefore, they could go fuck themselves. We don't have to listen to the Jews any longer. Nobody is bound to listen to the Jews any longer. In 70 AD, their authority was taken away. So Paul later taught that the works of the law were vain, which men performed to seek after and to exhibit their own righteousness in order to exalt themselves. But on the other hand, he that taught that keeping the spirit of the law, on the other hand, he taught that keeping the spirit of the law and seeking to edify one's brethren in the love of Christ was the true path to righteousness. Realizing the difference between the two attitudes, that of Christ and that of the temple officials, one should realize that Christ was indeed following God, while the temple officials were only seeking to exalt themselves and to magnify their own power and authority. So Christ challenges the people who question him. Has Moses not given you the law? And not one from among you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? As Paul also explained, no man can keep the entire law perfectly. And none of the Judeans at the time were correctly keeping the law. Yet at least some of them sought to condemn Christ, although he had not actually done anything which was proscribed by the law. Ultimately, as the records show in the Synoptic Gospels, the people as a whole did seek to kill him. But not all of them understood that at this early time, so they responded in denial. The crowd responded, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Yahshua Christ had told the truth, but he may have told it prematurely. So the people responded incredulously where they exclaimed, you have a demon. The subsequent events would prove that they, would, they were the ones with demons. Today, as Jews have once again attained a dominant position in world politics and in social status, aware white Christians attempt to sound the alarm that the Jews want to destroy them. And the modern Jews respond just as they did here by issuing statements condemning white Christians which say, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Yet white nations everywhere are being overrun with diversity and non-white immigrants. Sadly, most white Christians refuse to believe it because they did not hear it in school or on television. And many of those who do suspect that something is wrong with society, still refuse to speak out for fear of the Jews.
when we return, we will summarize these verses from John's perspective without the parallels comparing our present circumstances in these last days. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.